It is Lawyer Talk Roundtable Edition, June 1st, 2022. Uh, we are here with the full crew. We got Jared at the helm. That's where I used to sit, too. I don't know about that. Uh, Jared sitting where I used to sit. Brett over there in the hot corner. And uh, Norm sort of uh, hiding out on the other end of the round table. There is no end. That's all round. But um, anyway, we've got uh, another special guest phoning in here momentarily. In fact, we're going to uh, hook up very soon. Uh, so, Norm, who, who'd, you, who'd you line up this time? Uh, the gentleman is named uh, Jim Irvine. He's with the Buckeye Firearms Association, and uh, they are the NRA affiliate um, for gun owner representation in the state of Ohio. They're a 501c4 uh, charitable organization, so nonprofit. We're going to talk a little bit about guns, gun safety, and maybe some, uh, we might even have to hit the school shooting to get some insight into that to uh, where, where they stand on it all. But uh, it looks like we got Jim waiting on the phone here, so uh, let's get this thing moving. Uh, Jim, how are you doing this morning? Hey, guys, it is great to join you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, happy to talk to you. There's lots of stuff going on with uh, guns and guns, gun debates, and uh, hopefully you can help us shed some light on it. Norm, why don't you give us the introduction? Uh, Jim uh, is with the Buckeye Firearms Foundation. Um, he's worked uh, hand in glove with uh, uh, all of the pro-Second Amendment groups that have been active in Ohio, like uh, the Ohio Gun Collectors Association, the uh, Buckeye Firearms Association, and other groups. Um, and, of, of course, the big 800-pound gorilla, um, uh, the National Rifle Association, which you guys may not know, but Mr. Murdoch here uh, interviewed to be their uh, Ohio lobbyist uh, probably mm, 15, 20 years ago. So I went to D.C. And, and uh, so I've been interested in this uh, issue of how we uh, protect and uphold um, Ohio's gun rights for a long time. And I'm, I have to tell you, I get scared. Uh, not only for the children at these schools, uh, which I'm sure Jim is, is, is right there. We all are. Uh, and yet I, I'm even more afraid that the solution uh, to these school shootings and some of these mass shootings like in Buffalo or the Robb Elementary School, that the solutions are going to strip us or people will attempt to strip us of our constitutional rights. So with that, it's Mr. Jim Irvine. And Jim, why don't you kind of give us the orientation as you see the lay of the land and then describe some of the programs that you think will, if not solve, at least go a long way to addressing school safety uh, and the issue of firearms in particular in the state of Ohio. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated issue, but it's a, it's interesting if we look at the first half of last century, we had just a grotesque number of children die in school fires. And we got sick of that. And we told the fire guys, hey, this is not acceptable. Fix it. And the result is we put in fire alarms. We do fire drills. We have sprinkler systems and extinguishers and emergency exit lights and doors that open out. Now, all of these things have been done. It's redundant, overlapping layers of protection, and it's cost a lot of money and effort. And the bottom line is it works. In the last 60 years, we have not lost one child in the entire United States, K through 12, in the entire public school system. The fire guys absolutely rocked it. So on violence, it's a little bit of a different story. Uh, it's bad and getting worse. And I, I joke with the school systems, I'm like, hey, when we look at law enforcement, we see they keep adjusting what, they're, what they do and how they respond to events because they don't like losing people on their property. They have after action on every, everything they do. When we look at the medical community, they haven't just tweaked. They've completely reversed what they taught on tourniquets for 100 years. It's totally different now. Tourniquet is the first line of defense in mass casualties because you don't lose a limb. Everything they taught us is wrong. So knowledge changed. Guess what? The earth's not flat anymore. So we know this stuff. When we look at our school systems, well, they keep repeating the same mistake, expecting a different result. Why are our enlightened educators the last ones to learn? And it's, it's frustrating. This is a realm that they're not used to, but they've had enough time now that they need to address these issues. It's just not acceptable to say, well, we didn't do that when we were growing up. Well, you know what? We didn't treat cancer the way we do today either. But if you did what we did 30 years ago, a lot more kids would die. 
it is malpractice in the medical industry. It's negligence in our school industry. And, and they need to wrap their heads around this and change their game. So Columbine was a big event, kind of changed our nation's psyche on that. It shocked us. Um, and then we've had a hundred, literally over a hundred other ones. Sandy Hook shook us to the core and it was the age of the children. The age of those children were different than anything else we'd seen before. Otherwise, it didn't set new records. It didn't do anything really new or novel. But the, the age of those kids, you can't look at a picture of a six- or seven-year-old child in innocence and, and not be horrified over what happened to them. And so that's where our Faster Saves Lives program was born, um, out, of, out of that event. Now, it exists, it, the training and stuff existed before, but schools didn't want to listen to it. That shocked them so bad for the first time schools in Ohio said, whoa, we need something to deal with this. We didn't think it could happen in an elementary school. We didn't have, it, it touched a lot of nerves. So we, we worked with John Benner at Tactical Defense Institute, and we also work with uh, Andrew Bluebaugh's Apex Shooting and Tactics now as the other, those are the two instructors that we contract with to teach this class. We've been doing it for coming on 10 years now. Um, Collectively, we've trained approximately 3,000 people in 300 districts in 20 states. It's the biggest program in the country. We've done more than anybody else by far. I'm very, very proud of that. However, it's, I got to say, it's not because of me. It's because we collectively knew the experts to go to. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on the mindset stuff, Benner on some of the shooting new tactics, Andrew on stuff, uh, multiple doctors, uh, literally world-renowned on what they do on our trauma stuff and the medical and how, how that goes. And it keeps advancing and changing. It's kind of like the Stop the Bleed, except for Stop the Bleed is sort of a government thing, and government tends to stop learning. They have a program and they just repeat it. Um, we're, we're never satisfied. Every, every year to two years, we bring in the docs and have them look at it and, uh, hey, what else do we need to be doing? And they've made significant changes and additions, a lot more medical than we used to do, actually double pretty much what we used to do so jim it's really uh, can i uh it's, can it's i an just evolving program jim uh this is norm okay can i ask uh uh if you could if you know the stat uh, out of the three thousand people that you've trained and i think you said 20 states uh with the safe a faster saves lives program do you know how many of those people um how approximately uh were trained uh for ohio schools the the vast majority of them Okay. It's uh, we've we've had people, yeah, easily ninety percent, I would say. Um, wow. So we have what happens is we have states, other schools, and other states. They care about their kids just as much as we do, and they look around and they they call us up and say, "Hey, we've looked around. We think you're the best school in the country." Or law enforcement has told us, "Look, these guys are ahead of what we're doing in law enforcement. Go out there and train with them." So we get people from other states coming in. I've been in discussions with people in three different states to they want this week they want to bring us into their state and have make our program available to their schools and uh, Jim, you know how do we make that happen can you describe uh the training in the faster program uh so what so we we have approximately 90 percent of the 20 or uh, 3,000 so say 2,700 uh, Ohioans in public schools or, or private schools both um, can can you describe uh, what that faster uh, training involved, and then talk a little bit about the Supreme Court decision in Ohio that blew up the program, and why we need House Bill ninety nine now, if you don't mind? Yeah. So the the training we they they have to have a concealed handgun license as a prerequisite, and they have to do a foundation class with us. So it's eight hours of grip sight, trigger, weapon manipulation, and gear manipulation. And basically, we want them to come in at a better shooting level than the average police officer to start our class. By bringing them in at a higher level, putting them with world-class trainers, it allows them to, us to kick them out at a way higher level. So it involves mindset. If you want to solve a problem, let's start by understanding it. And uh, so the history of active killers and and the mindset that it takes to do this. And, and for some of them, it's natural because they've been concealed carry license holders for years. For others, it's, it's shocking. And we have people just step out of the program there. They're, they're like, hey, I, I can't shoot a child. Well, that may be who your killer is in this awful situation. So the history is important. 
the Jim, mindset Jim, if, is if you, let me let me interrupt you real quick. So when you, you say they, the people coming to do your training, who are these people? Like who who are you? Who are the folks that come to Faster Saves Lives uh, to get the training? And then how do they apply to the the school systems? It's it's shifted over the years. When we started, we trained concealed carry license holders who were already carrying a gun every day. They'd been carrying it since the law went into effect. And now, but they happen to work in a school instead of working in wherever else they, we all work. And so they took the training and then they went and begged for permission from their local school district. So just normal citizens, just, just not, not police officers necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's, that was the normal at the beginning for the first few years, but it has changed. It's evolved. Now I would say close to half the class has never shot a gun until in the prior year when the school decided, hey, we need to do something on this. And they look around at their staff and they pick them and they say, hey, are you willing to do this? Now, let me go talk to my husband. Let me go talk to my wife. They think about it. They agree to it. They got to go take a concealed handgun class. They buy their first gun. They buy a holster. They buy some ammo. They come take a foundations class from us. They learn I don't have the right gun and holster and stuff for this job. And so they got to change and do all this stuff. It's a huge learning curve for them. Um, so it's, it's a mix in between. But we also, we really push and love getting a school resource officer in a training. If a school has a resource officer, we want them to come to this training. Two big reasons. One is they're going to be the natural liaison between the school and the police department, and that fosters a good relationship of training. Now we've got our law enforcement training in our schools, which they previously weren't able to do, and we've got our school staff that are authorized to carry the guns training with law enforcement and learning stuff that we don't cover in the class, and it's a continual relationship. The benefits that have come out of that are massive, absolutely massive. Uh, Just one quick example, a sheriff, because of that relationship, has a double homicide in a rural county, calls his superintendent, says, hey, they're young, I've got a picture on a security camera, but we have no idea where to start or who they are. In 20 minutes, the superintendent can call them back and go, here's their two names, here's their Facebook page where he's wearing the same T-shirt he is where he bought the gas to burn the bodies. It's solved a crime across multiple state lines in 20 minutes. How, for law enforcement who are opposed, man, how would you like that relationship with your school? That is huge. And for the schools, it has paid huge benefits on a superintendent getting an early heads up. Hey, we just found your teacher, one of your teachers in such and such place so that the school knows before the, the fo- photos get out and the news and stuff like that, it allows the schools to be out ahead of this. It is, there's so much for both sides to benefit when they work together. Never saw that at the beginning of the program, but in, the, in our good districts, over and over again, it is so cool. What's, and, and, and if they have an event, they've trained together. They know each other. They, they re, they're friends with each other. How cool it is that all of those relationships and skills will come into the nonverbal on event day. If they have it, they're so much better prepared than, than districts who, who have been sitting on the sidelines not doing it. So, Jim, uh, back in June of, uh, of last year, the Ohio Supreme Court made, I mean, they acted like a legislature. They decided that you're trained people, and, and I, I mean you generally, because you're you're in the middle of this, but that the the trained uh, volunteer uh, safer people at these school districts um, would have to, instead of the training that that makes sense and and that's proportional to what they're doing, the the Ohio Supreme Court decided that only if they went through the 728 hour training that they had uh, that at the Ohio Peace uh, Officers Training Academy or something uh, 20 years of experience one or the other that only those people could carry on a school campus and it basically destroyed the program and uh, if you could talk a little bit about that and how uh, Representative Tom Hall's uh, legislation is necessary, you guys, uh, uh, the Buckeye Firearms Association, not the foundation, but you were in the room yesterday when testimony uh, was uh, given before the Senate committee to pass that out and, and eventually go to a vote. So if you could t- walk us through 
you know what how we're in jeopardy right at the wrong time right when we need these these people to be able to defend the children at exactly the wrong time the supreme court blows up the program if you could go into that yes so the supreme court extreme judicial activism it's the the ruling makes absolutely no sense but it it doesn't have to when you just make up your own decisions and write whatever it is and it's total nonsense everybody knows it um so yeah it stripped schools of their school emergency response plans probably 200 districts not not a third of the public school districts because a lot of schools we work with are charter private parochial stuff but in our public i've talked to multiple public school districts the last year has been a very difficult year while uvalde was unfolding we were actually on the phone with the school system who was pissed because the shooting down the street, which is maybe where Uvalde started, was going on. And so they're in lockdown and they have no protection for their staff and their students. And they're really upset. We said, well, wait a minute. You guys have an SRO. What's the deal on that? They're like, yeah, he's on vacation this week. Well, guess what? Murphy raises his ugly head at the worst times. And this is how things happen. And we see it in all of these school killings. They have this stuff in place, but they have one layer of protection instead of multiple like the fire guys did. And so now a bunch of people die. That It's just not acceptable. I'm an airline pilot. We've got – it's funny. People come in the cockpit. Oh, it's complicated. Well, it looks that way because there's two of every single thing we have in, in the airplane. Except for the really important stuff, we got three of those because that's how we keep people safe. And that's – it's just the safety model. So House Bill 99 – aims to correct that. It has gone through some massive revisions since it's uh, in, in various incarnations. But yesterday, a new sub-bill was adopted, um, and it kind of merges uh, Senator Hoagland's Senate Bill 168, which is a, a school marshal program. I might be using the wrong word on that. And, and Frank Hall's original concept, and then make some other changes and additions. So it's kind of a neat way of doing it, one of the failures other states have had is they're like you say they're trying to do this law enforcement thing well our teachers just because they're carrying guns it doesn't make them law enforcement any more than the quarter of a million other citizens who are carrying guns in ohio uh we're just license holders doing our job we have no official duty we're not security officers neither are these school staff members so our training has succeeded because we've realized who they are and what they need to stop this event we're not making them police. We're allowing them to stop the killing till we get police in the building. We're allowing them to treat the medical stuff and keep so we can transfer live bodies instead of dead ones. It's, that's all this is. We still need the police. We still need the medic. It's no different than using an EpiPen for somebody who has an allergy. It's no different than dragging a kid off the bottom of the pool instead of while you're waiting. You do CPR. You don't let – we don't just stop and do nothing after we call 911 in any other emergency – it is a complete anomaly that we, they do it in violence, and it's just it's wrong. they got to stop. So yesterday's hearing, hours of testimony in opposition to this House Bill 99. And look, the opponents care. They, they really care. They love their kids as much as we do, and they raised valid, legitimate, and reasonable concerns. They really did, most of them. But every one of those concerns is easily addressed with education and training. And that's what our program is designed to do is, is deal with that. We've worked with, I don't even know how many dozens and dozens of school districts that said, we are never going to do this. And we're like, how about the medical stuff? They're like, all right, we'll do medical. We just don't like guns. But then in talking to us, they'll ask questions and we'll, our answers, they'll realize, oh, wow, we don't have something to deal with that. What do you guys have? And we're like, well, that's the firearms training comes in when all else has failed. And they're like, wow, yeah, we don't have that. Well, we don't need it. But then they'll get a parent in a custody dispute or the, just the homeless guy walks in and all somebody comes in the back door that is left open. All of these things that happen and they realize everything we did, the camera didn't stop them. The radios didn't stop them. We had a guy inside and you know what, when we called police, they didn't get here in three minutes like they said they would. They were busy and they had other excuses and it took them 20 minutes to get here and we were scared. And you know what? Now they realize how vulnerable they really are if someone was intent on doing harm instead of just stumbling around. Yeah, and, Jim, uh, um, Norman. And, and then they come back begging, and yeah. they, they implement the policy. And, it, and it's sad that it has to be like that. But look, it's like somebody else pointed out. When you look at law enforcement, you, when you look at aviation, when you look at anything, big stuff, 
Like my manuals as a pilot, they're written in blood. All our rules came because somebody right. else died. And it sucks that that's, that's kind of the way our human minds work, sadly. But um, it is the way it is. Yeah, We've had Jim, enough kids die. So, Jim... We've, we've um, been there, done that. It's time to change the system. Yeah. Jim, uh, yesterday, from what I understand, there were 36 witnesses in the Senate hearing against the bill. The, the Senate committee uh, passed the bill anyway. There was one voice for the bill, and that was uh, Buckeye Firearms. So, uh, salute to uh, your compatriots and your you know, your your fellow, uh, and I read his testimony, uh, this Mr. Sexton who represented uh, BFA, and it was good testimony. Um, also yesterday... There, tr- there, was, there was one other guy... Was there one the, other? Okay. Uh, the, last, the last witness who talked, and um, his name escapes me right now. It begins with a D. But um, he, who also did an excellent job, he's a... Uh, a former Marine, he lives, breathes, training stuff, and uh, he also gave great testimony. And that's, it's, like, people ask us, well, what about those that are opposed? I'm like, they're good people, they mean well, they just don't understand this horrible, horrible awful realm. It's repulsive sure. to them, because they're good people. Well, yesterday... Yester- we've engaged the people who live and breathe in it. Yesterday... And that's what we've come up with. Yesterday, also, Governor DeWine came out, and, you know, my my ears pricked up and one he, he didn't use the phrase red flag laws uh, but he said uh, we need a you know we need an early warning system so clearly that's where he's going um he also mentioned something about staffing up uh, a, a small office called the ohio school safety center which currently employs something like five liaison uh people to do uh, best practices and uh, some kind of training by the state of Ohio. Um, can you talk a little bit about the effectiveness in, or, or what are the problems? What are the benefits of red flag laws? I mean, obviously, if I know some kid that's killing uh, pet rabbits, uh, that's addicted to video <clears throat> games, and you know goes out and beats somebody up if he loses at uh, Call of Duty, or you know shows some kind of antisocial behavior. You know, I need to uh, do something if his parents aren't doing something. So, you know, there is a need to report uh, somebody who's a danger to the community. Uh, do we need red flag laws to do that? What's your What's your opinion on that kind of thing? That apparently Dewine is so, gonna gonna do something in that direction. I I I hate the word red flag laws because it means so many different things in different states. It's like assault weapon. What does that mean? Well, everybody defines it differently. So, but governor DeWine cares deeply about people. I I mean, that is, that just drives him. He, he is really distraught when innocent people die and it doesn't matter whether it's from COVID or the killings over in Dayton or a school killing. He, it bothers him on a gut level that people don't understand. That's just part of what drives him. So the question is, can we identify these people ahead of time? And the answer is sort of and sometimes. Uh, some of them know, but a lot of our active killers, they've got lots of warning signs ahead of time. Um, and so what can we do about that? Well, the, one of the easiest things is when you have someone who's a prohibited person because they have an addiction or they have a mental illness or they have something like this, there's federal databases to put it into. Our courts don't bother too often. They just don't. And um, so we have people who shouldn't be able to go buy a gun, but they can pass a background check because the background, the database sucks. So the database needs to be fixed. But sometimes we get people put on the database who haven't done anything wrong. There needs to be a way to get those people off, too. So either way, the background check's only as good as the database you're checking against. And that's something that I think the governor has done significant improvements on to, uh, to try and address. So that's a big one that, that really potentially could have stopped the Dayton killings. Um, so other concern stuff. Can We already have an existence, we call it pink slip in Ohio, and that allows law enforcement to go take someone into custody and hold them for 72 hours to do an evaluation. At that end of that 72 hours, they either got to charge them or incarcerate them or 
he's adjudicated somewhere, or they set him free. So it gives them time to look at this person and go, wow, is this someone who had a really bad day and lost their temper? Or is this someone who has other significant issues that we need some intervention on? So we already have a place, a system in place to do this. Does it work perfect? No. Just like everything else in law enforcement and medical in the world, uh, there is no perfection in this, but it works pretty darn good most of the time. And the key is, we, number one, you cannot deny someone's constitutional rights unless they have their right to due process in a court. It, that's just fundamentally wrong and un-American. So we don't want to do that, and the governor's always supported us on that. And then also, you don't – let's say we have a person who is – Mentally incompetent or sick or whatever you want to call it, this person is, we all agree this person shouldn't, has got issues. Some people want to just go take his guns away. Well, you know what? We don't treat mental illness by taking somebody's property. That's wrong. We treat mental illness by getting them with a doctor. Maybe they need counseling. Maybe they need medication. Maybe they need a combination. Maybe they need to be institutionalized. We don't know how to deal with whatever they have yet. There's all of this. It's an enormously wide spectrum. And the governor has also been very supportive in, in understanding that we don't treat mental illness by stealing people's stuff, guns or anything else. We need to treat the patient, not steal his stuff. And, uh, and, and I think that's really important. These are people who, they're people. They need help. They have this sickness. We don't look at someone like cancer and go, well, you're worthless now. We're going to lock you up till you die. And mental illness is a complicated field. I am clearly no expert in it. But what I do know from talking to people is, just like cancer, just like heart disease, we have, the leaps and bounds our medical professionals have made in the last 10, 20, 30 years is astounding. We are so much better at it. We can treat people and cure, I don't want to say cure, but practically cure people who we used to be able to do nothing for. So if we can cure you of this situation and it's controlled and you're, you're healthy again, you should be able to have your rights back. Uh, Just Jim, like, I mean, I had a broken leg. I yeah. had to wear a cast, but then it healed and I'm good again. Let me jump in. So uh, an example I'm familiar with um, is epilepsy. So if you have somebody who suffers from epilepsy, uh, there are certain jobs that they can't hold. They can't be, you know, um, while they're healing or while it's being addressed, they can't, uh, you know, engage in driving. You know, if you have, if you're diagnosed as an epileptic, your, your, your doctor, is, it's incumbent on the doctor to report that to the Ohio BMV and they will suspend your license. So your driving privileges are withdrawn until you're medicated or it's resolved somehow. So will, will the pink slip program or a law in Ohio, which I'm totally unfamiliar with, will it allow that kind of an evaluation? And if somebody is truly schizophrenic or if they have some kind of serious mental illness, is there a way to confiscate their weapons until, you know, and I mean knives, I mean guns, I mean whatever the weapon is, is there a way to address that until that person is either made better or, you know, it just might be the case that that person isn't fit to possess that, you know, they're incompetent. But it, it's, I, I don't know, is the short answer. Okay. But it's, I love the way you describe that question because you talk about guns or knives or weapons, and that really is the key because what is a deadly weapon? Sure. Well, it's whatever I use to kill someone. A car. So it can be right. a brick. Sure. A, a, yeah, we, yeah, vehicular homicide. Uh, people get their heads bashed in with bricks or other blunt objects on a, on a fairly frequent basis. So the question is, does taking their gun solve the problem? That's the one that makes the headlines, but it's not really the most common thing. So we're not addressing it, and it's, it's weapons. Well, how do you address weapons? What do you, they got kitchen knives. Do you go take all of those? Um, do you take the baseball bat? So, again, that's where we're like, look, you can't take property to solve the problem. You need to take the person and treat them. That's what we have to do. And, um, but it's complicated. You don't want to just go take someone out of their home if they're otherwise functional and they're not really causing a problem. They just irritate their neighbors. 
And it's, there's so many shades of gray in all of this stuff. And look, I've worked on trying to write code on it. Um, and the governor said, hey, what do you want? I'll give you carte blanche. What do you guys want to do? And, and we took a shot at it. And they did all this stuff and then sent us back a draft. And I'm like, hey, this is unacceptable. And they're like, it's exactly <clears throat> what you asked for. I'm like, yeah, I see that. But now I'm looking at it from different angles, and I'm seeing problems all over everything we, we uh, requested. It's just – and look, no, no one has come up with the solution to the problem that works – really well yet uh jim it's just we're not we're struggling and i hope we get there yeah we just we're just not there yet unfortunately let me switch gears a, a little bit unless these guys want to jump in on the school issue but you you did a lot a lot of work on what's called concealed or, or constitutional carry um with, with that's coming up on june the 13th so you know a little under two weeks um what you know? What, what advice do you have to people? You know, I'm I'm sure there's a bunch of people thinking that they don't need training. You know, woohoo! The floodgates are open. I'm just going to start carrying. And what I'm concerned about. So I'll just speak for myself. I'm concerned about people who have never used a firearm, whether they were in the Boy Scouts or they did your course or they've done the NRA's course or any kind of gun safety course. And they're gonna they're gonna go down uh, and and buy a gun from their buddy or or at a local uh, dealer, and they won't be trained and they're gonna carry and you know they're gonna shoot themselves in the leg you know uh, when they touch a trigger because they're not gonna have the safety set they're gonna have a round chambered I'm just worried and I'd like you to address that a little bit I'm sure you're very pro training that's what you're all about so this would be a time for you to give a message to what you think the smart way is to do constitutional carry and what your, you know, what your advice would be along those lines. Well, I, I echo your same concerns. You're exactly right. That's going to happen. Uh, if you think training is an inconvenience, try carrying without. And if you think that shot shooting in your foot sucks, <laughs> shoot somebody else and deal with the liability that's going to come out of that. Yeah. Or just not understand the law because you didn't sit through the law stuff and you didn't read the attorney general pamphlet and you're going to get charged with a felony. I've talked to people. I, this one guy, very nice guy, family guy, yada, 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 a very minor infraction. And uh, he's like, hey, what's, what is all, they pleaded guilty. It's a misdemeanor. This is laws changed now, but this is on this particular incident. But, He's like, they're calling me about reporting to prison. I don't understand. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What did you, what happened here? Well, I pled guilty to this thing. It's a misdemeanor. I paid my $500 fee and we're done. I'm like, no, that charge has a gun spec on it. He goes, what's that? I said, it's a one minimum one year in prison. I can't go to prison. I've got, I'm a accountant, whatever he did. I've got a wife. I got three kids. I'm involved in all this stuff. Great guy. What can I do? Can I, can I, what do I peel it? I'm like, no, dude, you pled guilty to it. His, his, like, I don't know, patent attorney, brother-in-law, or whatever, represented him. Mm. I look, I got friends who are patent attorneys. I'm not ditching them. But you need a criminal, you need an understanding of the criminal law on this. And I, I'm like, dude, you're, you're going to go to jail for a year. You can sue your brother-in-law for malpractice. You pleaded guilty to something with a one-year gun spec. You're going to prison for a year. People need to understand that while that is gone, there are still traps for the unwary. And they, if you're carrying a gun... You better understand the law, and you better follow it. Ignorance is no excuse. So if you don't want to take a class, then you better do your homework and do your reading or talk to an attorney and pay them to brief you. Do whatever you do, but you have to follow the law. And if you don't, it's going to hurt really bad. I cannot even tell you, and you guys know this too as attorneys, it's how many, how many people get jammed up because they don't understand pretty simple things. It's critical. The other thing just legally is I don't care who you are where you are. If you're going to travel anywhere outside your home and stuff with this gun, concealed carry, you need a license. No, we don't, Jim. It's, it's permitless carry now. Yeah, you do. Federal law says you got to have one in a school zone. That's not school property. It's the 1,000-foot perimeter. Every time your GPS buzzes, every time you see that school zone sign, all that stuff, doesn't matter whether school's in session or not. Federal law, you are required to have the license from your state that you're in. Reciprocity doesn't even work. Get an Ohio license. If you live in this state, you got to have a license. To That's what law-abiding people do. 
I know it's not required. That's cool. It protects a family member who doesn't carry a gun. If you accidentally left the gun in the car, it gives some protection on that. But don't think that it excuses you from training or getting a license. It just doesn't. Hey, hey Jim, I, you know, I think we're, we're running out of time here, so we got to wrap it up. Um, but a couple, uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, if you're, if just Joe citizen or Jane citizen wants to get a hold of you and take some training and take some classes, because I think if there's one takeaway here, it is this, if you're going to take the responsibility to go, or if you're going to buy a firearm and you're going to actually possess it, use it, own it, then you should take the responsibility to learn how to use it, possess it and own it safely and effectively. If somebody's going to do that, uh, and want some training, how do they, how do they get a hold of you and, and what do they have to do? Um, well, on the for the faster training, it's fastersaveslives.org, um, and that's they can sign up for there. Um, and otherwise, I just say, look, go to – I love – like our two trainers, they can go privately take classes from Tactical Defense Institute in Southern Ohio or Apex Shooting and Tactics up here. But there's a lot of other good trainers. Training is something that you don't do once and you're done with. That is a – I don't know how people think that's okay. <clears throat> it is not. Training is something you need to be doing actively every year. If you're going to carry a gun, be a responsible citizen. What we saw down in people like criticize law enforcement on their response to active killers, well, guess what? A lot of their training sucks. That's why we do better than that, and that's why school resource officers love taking our training. It's better than what they get as a cop because it's designed for them. And go get training for wherever you are at, whatever level. I don't care whether it's a local range with a local instructor, your friend who happens to, to shoot and can show you some things. But practice and training are two different things. Our world's best athletes work with trainers and do practices and work really hard to improve their skills. If someone at the top of their game is paying someone to make them better, you're betting your life on your skills with a gun. How foolish is it? to not spend a minimum of a day a year taking some training class somewhere from some competent trainer and improve your skills. And the other thing is, it's fun. If any good trainer, you will enjoy the class and you'll walk out going, wow, I can't believe I've been carrying a gun for years and I didn't know what I just learned in this class. I guarantee it. All right. Well, look, great advice. We, uh, again, thank you very much for taking your time this morning to uh, talk to us here at Lawyer Talk and, uh, uh, we, I, I, you know, this is an ongoing issue. It's going to be an ongoing debate and, and certainly not going to be solved overnight. And I think you said over and over that uh, it's a complicated problem with lots of moving parts. So uh, we appreciate you being part of the solution and uh, uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. I appreciate that you guys do a show helping people understand these issues. You're part of the solution and you reach a ton of people. And it's really everybody listening. Get your gun friends. Listen to the show because it's important stuff. It's it's critical. Thanks for the service you guys provide. I greatly appreciate it, and God bless you. Take care. All right, Jim. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. All right, that was Jim. Uh, you know, a lot of great information there. He, he, it's it's interesting how his perspective uh, was one of uh, prevention, security, uh, sort of the front-end stuff. And then we have the reactionary end happening right now, and that, that always happens on both sides. So, you know, on the on the – on the anti-gun side, there's the reactionary force is out there saying, get rid of all the guns and we won't have any gun violence. On his side, he's sort of saying, look, we're never getting rid of all the guns, like it or not, so let's uh, prepare for the gun violence. And, you know, it, it, both sides at polar opposite, hopefully something in the middle happens that's that's beneficial for everybody. Yeah, well, there's got to be a table that they got to be able to sit and talk. Yeah. We've we got to create this atmosphere. Like, we got to hammer this thing out because kids are losing their lives. Yeah. Yeah, know. no, exactly. On, on Vice Network, they have a show called Killer Teens. <laughs> it's a show about a bunch of kids that kill people, right? Mm. But they did this one episode. It's like an hour-long program. It's a half-hour one kid, half-hour another kid. Anyhow, um, 1979, or is it eight? I forget her name. But this girl, her house was near school, and she killed the president, I mean, the, the principal. Uh, one guy, he was like a maintenance guy, killed him, shot nine children, right? This happened in 1978. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because I, I, I did some digging into some stats. After this Texas shooting, since this Texas shooting, there's been at least 12, if not more, incidents across the country 
that would qualify as a mass shooting. At least 12. And they're not at schools, obviously, but they're in the cities, on the streets, gang shootings, uh, robberies, stuff gone bad. You know, so the, the, the problem is an enormous one, and it's, there's not going to be a simple solution. What always bugs me is that people tend to just make this a zero-sum equation where the only way to solve this is get rid of all the guns, or the only way to solve this is to give everybody a gun, and neither of those solutions are going to work. I mean, I, I think Jim's at least onto something here where he can say, all right, let's at least accept the reality that this crap is going to happen until we address the mental health issues that we're going to have to address in this country or the whatever is causing people to go haywire in 1978 or 1998 or 2022. You know, there's, there's, there's people going haywire. And, you know, it, what, what troubles me is that the other side of Jim is going to dismiss him out of hand and say that all you want to solve a gun problem is more guns, you know, this rhetorical response. And, you know, Jim is Jim is trying to say, well, look, we're never going to get rid of all the guns. So let's at least let's at least take some protective measures here. You know, the boats are going to sink. So let's put some lifeboats on them. And, and that way, if it happens, uh, we'll be prepared for it. Um, you know, we're not going to solve it right here at the roundtable. But it just always bugs me that it, it becomes this zero sum game where you have to have no guns or you have to have all guns. And uh, it. it, it when it's polar opposite like that, nothing ever happens. It, it struck me too listening to this about the training, which I love him, him talk about, but it, how much more training we have around our privileges that we have in our life than we have around the rights that we have in our life. Well, we have a right to a gun, yep. but, we have a, but we have a privilege to drive, Yep. but we have more training around driving than we do the rights. You know, it, isn't, it, it's, isn't it odd? It's odd. In, isn't it? Yeah. If you look at the history of our country and even beyond, you know, p- kids used to grow up driving tractors. They used to grow up even before that, uh, working with tools or doing whatever there was. And one of the tools they worked with was a firearm. You know, mm-hmm. if it was in the country or when you grow, you had firearms. So training happened at home, mm-hmm. and you know, firearm safety happened at home. And if you talk to your grandfathers, um, they'll tell you. I used to work. I used to walk in the woods with my grandfather, and if I pointed my gun in any direction other than the ground, he took it from me and made me walk backwards the rest of the thing. I remember some some old guy telling me that. You know, it's like it, that stuff was just taught. It was ingrained. It was part of it. And, and when I started hunting, uh, there is that that link to the past that still exists in that culture. But in the modern culture, it's not there anymore. Yeah. You know, you, you can go into Vance's or a gun shop here and they'll hand you a firearm. You can own it and walk away with it. And you have a constitutional right for that if you otherwise qualify. But if nobody is at home teaching you how to do it, then how do we fix that? Yeah. Have you ever gone hunting? So I, I did a little bit of, uh, of um, uh, quail hunting um, at a club, you know, where they station the quail, the dog, you know, uh, scares them up. They go airborne and then it's like a clays kind of thing. You're, you're, you're shooting at them as they, as they fly. So w- I, di- I did a day of that. And uh, one of the guys we were with, had not he he didn't really tell us but he had obviously not had any training and uh so we practiced a little bit ahead of time but several times during that day he swept us if you know what sweeping is so he's holding a 12 gauge right and it's loaded and every now and then he he would have the gun as as he is rotating it to go shoot He's sweeping the other, meaning aiming at in a in a in a in a uh, kind of a, a curve. He's he's sweeping the other uh, humans that are with him on this hunt, and uh, you know we stopped him cold. I mean we had to, we had to disabuse him of of this carelessness that he was practicing, and it's I mean that's just one micro example. There's going to be with people carrying, which I'm in favor of constitutional carry. But as Brett just said, you know, I'd like to see some kind of training component that people do of their own volition. You know, maybe when you buy a gun, maybe it ought to have that uh, pamphlet from the attorney general, you know, with a little string around the trigger guard, you know, so that everybody gets that pamphlet that says, hey, dummy, if you're going to carry this thing, you can't do it in a school zone unless you have the license and other kinds of things. It just yeah. seems like we can do a little bit more 
at at gun shows and at the dealer uh, uh, counter with uh, education that then very strongly suggests in no uncertain terms that you also go get training. Well, even to his story of the the family guy having to spend a year in prison yeah, because he thought he did the right thing, paid the fine, was like, no, that carries a year. Yeah, and that that's just... That's scary as hell. That just, that, that, I'm, I'm, it makes me just cringe because doing what I do, I, I've talked to a lot of people. It used to be when you took a gun class to or a carry concealed class, they would advise you at the end, you should find a lawyer and call that lawyer and get him on your or her in your Rolodex, so to speak. So if you have a problem, you can call. So they would, and I get these calls periodically um, where somebody will call and say, look, I, I got my CCW. Now they said, call lawyer. So I'm calling you. And I've never, I've never billed anybody for this service. I've talked to, I've had people come into my office and met with them for a couple hours to talk about gun stuff. And, um, and I always disclose to them. I don't and still don't have my license to carry concealed handgun. And they ask why, and I would say because I don't want the responsibility. I, I, I don't, I, you know, it's it's a huge responsibility. They look at me sort of strange, and I know a lot about firearms. I know a lot about firearm safety, and I've taken, uh, you know, the time to learn and, and and talk to professionals and go through the the work. But uh, and I don't, I haven't done it. And what I always tell people is, uh, I've actually taught a class, a CCW class, and I, I came in as sort of the guest speaker. And uh, I, when I first got in, I said, all right. I want to see hands. I said, I don't remember what my criteria was, but some guy threw his hand. Up. I said, all right, you come up here. You sit at this table. <clears throat> and um, I, I was doing it with Derek, actually. Derek DeBross at Munitions Law Group. And I had him over on the other side. I said, now, Derek, you sit over on that table. And I said, son, you've just been charged with homicide. You've been charged with murder because you had to defend yourself and you used your gun and you shot somebody dead. And, you know, it, it sort of stopped the room because nobody really thinks of it that way. They always think like, I'm going to be the hero or I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that. Well, I had just gotten, just finished a murder trial for a guy who was uh, confronted on the street and shot somebody, killed him. And uh, he was accused of first degree murder. You know, I had a full blown knockdown drag out jury trial. And fortunately he was acquitted, but it cost him a lot of money. It cost him a huge chunk of his of his life as far as emotion and time and energy and, and going forward all the same. And when I teach people this stuff, I'm like, look, this is not something to sneeze at here. You know, you're carrying a firearm and you may have to kill somebody. And it's not just you have to kill somebody and be the hero and act like you're a tough guy or a tough gal. You might end up in my office where you're trying to defend yourself. And then I hear about some patent lawyer representing somebody in a criminal case, not even know what a firearm specification is. And you, you know, you could end up foolishly in prison just because you wanted to carry a gun for all the wrong reasons. And, uh, and when I say, I'm sorry, when I tell people I don't want the responsibility, I'm sort of trying to make a point when I say that, is to say, look, it's a huge responsibility. You're going to drive around with this gun. What happens when you stop for a beer on St. Patrick's Day? What happens when you uh, have dinner and three glasses of wine or two glasses of wine and you're on your way home and you get pulled over? What happens if you get attacked and you've had wine and you've got to use your gun? Now what? What are you going to tell the police then? That you're sober, that you're not sober. What what are the, what are the, what are you going to say when they ask you how much you had to drink? You're going to be thinking, well, wait a minute, I was the hero, I defended myself. Uh, no, now you're a guy that's drunk with a gun and you've committed crimes and murder while you were doing it. So welcome to my office. It's uh, it's an enormous responsibility, Norman. And I, I I like your idea. It's like we should tack on that information when people buy guns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, is it perfect? You know, it's like Jim said, there there are no perfect answers to any of this because, you know, I could go over to somebody's garage, he's having a yard sale and buy a firearm from him privately and legally, totally legally. And it's not going to come with any kind of uh, literature or anything like that, more than likely. It's just going to be, you know, his old <laughs> shotgun or his old revolver or whatever. So, you know, okay, we can't do, we can't have perfection, but we can try harder. We can, we, there are some things we can do. We can, you know, Jared, I saw the other day, I saw these, uh, you know, 15 year old kids, 16 year old kids, maybe they were 17 or 18 graduating in high school. I was picking up my son at school and they're cruising in and out of traffic on what looked to be scooters or whatever the, the most recent version of a moped is. And it's like, I almost, I almost felt like what we're talking about with that. I was watching that and somehow they felt like they were cool and safe. 
And they weren't, you know, they, they didn't know what they were doing on those damn things. Nobody trained them to use those freaking scooters or whatever the hell they were driving. They were riding like they were bicycles at the playground. <laughs> and yet they're on the roads without helmets, driving in and out of traffic. And it, it was just, it was reckless behavior. And I think owning guns is sort of like that. You can go do it. I mean, you can go buy a gun, you can go buy a scooter, you can buy a motorcycle. I suppose at least with a motorcycle, you have to have some sort of endorsement, as Brett said. But uh, it just seems like it's the Wild West out there on some of that stuff. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap it up. An interesting roundtable. You know, it's like we didn't it, – it, maybe it's a good thing. We didn't get into a hey, whole lot hey, of Steve, Texas stuff. Steve, yeah. real quick, because uh, you, you'll know about this. The rest of us don't. You're a lawyer, and, and you've represented people that, you know, have mental problems and, and things. Uh, it what Jim said about the courts doing a generally poor job of adding convicts, people coming out of a case that have been found guilty or been adjudicated incompetent or something. Um, and I say something cause I don't really know the process, but he said the courts in particular are doing a bad job of adding what would be the word incompetent people to the database? Well, the, the, what what is the database, and how, why don't the courts add these people so that when you do a background check down at a dealer, that it comes back from the you know the firearm database that oh hey dude that guy was found in family court uh, to be incompetent. He's an insane person. You can find too many opinions. Yeah, there, there, here's the problem with that. Yeah, what's the problem with the, that? The problem, the problem with red flag laws in general is one of enforcement, one of identification, and really... Well, not red flag. I mean this database that when you go it? to buy a firearm... That's right. Right, they're, they're but checking. if somebody has been declared mentally ill or incompetent for, for various reasons, they yeah. can end up on a list. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm using that as an example of a red flag law. Okay, Fair so enough, fair enough. I've had cases where a guy had, I think, significant, me- particularly one I'm thinking of, a guy had significant mental health issues. I mean, he was, he was, he had mental health issues, like would see people at night or, and, you know, just, he, he was, yeah, he had, had some mental health problems. Sure. And he knew it when he was co- coherent, he knew it. When he wasn't coherent, he didn't know it, uh, medicated or not medicated. And he liked firearms. And the prosecutor in that case wanted, a classification that he was declared to have a mental illness for purposes of a gun exclusion or a firearm exclusion under federal law. And it was a big deal to get that. And so it's it's not so obvious. Like the, the trial court wouldn't just know, well, this guy was incompetent for this and then send it off to a database and he's on it. it it's not so simple that way. And then, the, you know, the bigger issue, I suppose, is shifting that to the red flag laws. You know, some of those they get triggered when a neighbor calls or when an ex-spouse calls or when, you know, when somebody with an agenda to make sure they want to cause you harm, or even if they legitimately think that you've got issues can take actions to strip you of your constitutional right to carry or have a firearm. So on, you know, it's like everything else. It's always the devil's in the details. Yeah. So you can, it makes sense for everybody to say this. We don't want people crazy having guns, right? But then it's harder when you get when you narrow that funnel down to the person who who really is crazy, you don't want to have guns, how do you identify them? We know the obvious ones, like the kid who's killing cats and taking pictures of it and videos of himself uh, and then threatening to, to do things. Like you would think that somebody might call the system or call the cops or do something with that. But it's not always so clear what who you call and, and, and how that's going to work. And if there and I think some of that is because it's going to take some it's going to take some smart people to figure this out but it's going to take smart people who want to figure it out so on the it becomes a gun versus no gun debate it's well, a, it's a zero sum game it's back to that problem let me ask you what i think would be the most clear cut most defensible uh and least intrusive constitutional procedure so if you are in Ohio, now I could be asking a question you just don't know the answer to, right? Mm-hmm. Fair enough, right? <coughs> but I mean, you all lawyers can't be specialists in every field. I know everything normally. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are in Ohio, if you have been institutionalized, you, you've been taken to, I guess it would be probate court. And, and somebody said, hey, listen, my wife, my husband, my son, 
uh, my boss, whoever, I think they're insane. I think they need to be taken to a, a hospital. They need counseling. They need something because they're, you know, w- w- you know, I mean, he took his brand new Porsche and rammed it into a cement wall 10 times. And then he got in the suburban and he did that and he, and he, and he's killing cats and whatever. So you call the police, the judge has a hearing, brings a person in, hears from the psychiatrist, you know, takes testimony. And then he says, well, against your will, I'm going to institutionalize you. Okay. So when that happens, I'm wondering in every case, does the judge, does the court then send to the ATF or put on some kind of database? This person has been adjudicated insane. Is the minimum even happening? Yeah. I see. Here's the, again, the devil's in the details. Being like what Jim was saying about people getting pink slipped for 72 hours. Like it's not that hard to get pink slipped. You know, you could have, you could like he said, you'd be having a real bad day. Well, or, or I, I'm, I'm digging that. I'm saying when you've been well, adjudicated, this is what that is, though. So, what if somebody's pink slipped and, and shipped off to a mental institution for 72 hours, and there's a diagnosis that they had severe depressive disorder or something like that? Now, that is not necessarily going to trigger a firearms exclusion, as far as I know. Um, now, as far as if you have a full blown probate hearing and are declared incompetent, I think yes. You will lose your fire. It does go on a list, but those are huge gaps. Right? Oh, I, like I understand. In the, in the middle is just, where most of the problems are yeah. that don't even get discovered. Yes, yeah, Steve. So what I'm asking is, in the most intrusive, the most investigated, the most official proceeding to declare someone as incompetent or insane or whatever the right word would be, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think those things get. I think those things do find the list. Okay, that that's I think what they I, do. That's yeah. what I'm asking. I'm wondering if the courts are even doing their job here. Yeah, that, no, I think I'm they asking. are. So when he says the courts aren't doing their job, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But I, I think what he was. I think really what he's saying is it's so difficult to identify people in a formal proceeding with due process that shouldn't have guns. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it's easy when you see the guy who's crazy, you know, the guy's crazy. But then what do you do? Right. Who's whose job is it to, to identify them? Who brings them in? Who pink slips them? Because we sure then, take the right away from felons, don't we? What are the standards to not all felons? But, no, but I mean, you know, there is that system and those people get reported. I'm just wondering, do the insane people get reported? You know, if they've been adjudicated insane. Yeah, but yes, I think. But getting adjudicated insane is the trick, right? That's that's hard to do. Yeah, that's the trick. Right, right, right. And then, like Jared said, where is it, like, who's, what's the definitional structure that's going to strip you of your firearm? We can all say, generally speaking, we don't want crazy people with guns. Now, give me a definition of crazy person. Right. Yeah, right. And that holds up. I don't want the, and, and I don't want crazy people to drive cars. I mean, is it exactly. on the DSM five or whatever we're dude, on now? Dude, I don't want crazy people to fly airplanes, drive cars, uh, be the lifeguard at a swimming pool, That's be right. a teacher, be, I, be the chef at the restaurant. <laughs> That's right. right. So, <laughs> Seriously, right? Too late for all that. Yeah. So the you know the question it's easy to say we don't want crazy people, but right putting a definition on that and doing it fairly. Well, there's because the be political due- agenda is behind the definition sure. structure. Right. Well, there's got to be due process, right? And it's and then, not always political. It's not always political. You know, if I think my mom needs to have her driver's license taken away because oh, she's... Oh, no, that's a, not political, but taking guns away is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So so it's not always political. I mean, you know, Grandpa can have his Korean War uh, trophy collection that includes, uh, you know, a Chinese AK, AKS or something, and it can get to the point where Grandpa has such bad dementia that... You know, I can't just go take his gun from him. I need some kind of court action. And, yeah. and, and it can be very loving. It can be out of concern for him. It's yeah. not always political. Well, and, and political, it's that rights versus privileges. Yeah. Privileges what, have very few political actions, but the rights do. What, what I you mean know, by political is when we define what it means to be have a mental illness such that you can't have a firearm. Yeah. Who's writing the definition of that? Yeah. And then who's identifying those that should qualify or even should qualify for a hearing? Because even going and grabbing somebody and subjecting them to a hearing on that, it costs time, it costs money, it, yep. it deprives them of their freedom. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. You yes, can't just is. do that. And to and then if the other thing that gets very political is the people who don't like guns are going to define that stuff oh, in sure. a way that the, right. the – 
Well, anybody who's a Republican shouldn't have a gun. I mean, you know, right. I mean, well, and right. it's also the proactive versus reactive. Do you like you just said, go grab someone right before they've even done anything? Sure. Right. It's not minority report. here. I mean, so we like, have yeah. we do have liberals who are saying all Trump voters are white supremacists. Right. And then we have yeah. the, the, the director of the FBI or the attorney general testified that the number one problem in America is domestic terrorism. So clearly they're trying to say conservatives are the people that are, you know, we're the bomb throwers. We're the mass shooters. We're, right. you know, so, yeah, there's a lot of truth to what you said, Steve. So and that's ultimately that's the issue. Right. So we're going to I've said it a 100 times. If you want to get rid of all gun crime and you could just wave a magic wand and get rid of all the guns. Well, by definition, you're going to get rid of gun crime, but you're not going to get rid of crime. And, you know, and it just turns out that you can't wave a magic wand and get rid of all the guns. And then we've got the pesky Second Amendment stand in the way of everything. Um, And as the question I took on the Blitz today was, you know, what do we need to do to change the Second Amendment? Well, you know what? It's it's interesting because the Constitution came with an instruction book. And if people don't like it, if our country is done with it, well, they can just change the instructions. Uh, they can change the Second Amendment. They can amend it. They can re- they can repeal it. They can do whatever they want. But they don't have the votes for that. And it's not just Trump supporters. And it's not just Republicans. No, no. And it's not just no. whatever. It's people no. who want to have their guns. And, you know. Yeah, there are liberal groups that are very pro-gun. Uh, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, there's the Not Fucking Around Coalition, right? with uh, Grandmaster Jay. They're the guys that went on the march through downtown Louisville and one of their uh, assault rifles went off, you know, Mm. because a guy was incompetent. He shot two of his own members while they're marching, right? No arrest, no prosecution, nothing, right? Because, you know, it's a minority association. But clearly, you know, it's not just conservatives that own firearms, and it's clearly not it, the yeah. guy in Buffalo that the mass shooter in Buffalo said he was a communist in it, his manifesto. I, I got to thinking about this on the way in a little bit. Like if there is a there is a product out there that causes more death, more destruction, more crime than any other product. But lots of people use that product perfectly innocently and perfectly acceptably. Uh, they use it uh, responsibly. Yeah. And they never kill anybody. They never harm anybody. They never harm themselves. Right. And should you say then, we're just going to outlaw that product right. for everybody if right. the minority people are doing it or using that product in a way that's harmful to others. And then I got to thinking of, so you're thinking guns. I was thinking alcohol. I'm thinking cars. And you're thinking cars. Like the guy yeah. in Waukesha that, that slammed into a bunch of people right. at a Christmas parade. So should we let crazy people drive? Should we let reckless people drive? Should we let, <clears throat> like alcohol is responsible for, I, I, I will tell you this anecdotally, if not, my, my 25, six years of experience doing criminal law has taught me one thing. If you got rid of alcohol and it weren't replaced with something similar, you'd get rid of most crime. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Most crime is alcohol related. Wow. But that's already been proven wrong though. Prohibition. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know what I mean? You we can't got, get we rid got of it. rid of it. You can't get rid of it. We you did that. That's ex- the problem. We and did it, that experiment. And it created more crime. It didn't. It, yeah. Right. You you can't legislate it out of existence. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's the same kind of thing. And yeah. just yeah. like guns, you can make it at home. I can I can buy a three D right. printer. I can yeah. buy a three D printer. That's right. And, and, I can it, get a hammer and forge and just well, make my own. Yeah, well, Burton make us the, a gun. The, the the mountain people in the Kashmir mountains, right? They're over campfires are making firearms. Yeah. So I mean, you can't legislate it out of existence. Yeah. And it's it, you know there's there's cars are another one, alcohol is another one, and you know the drug war is the same kind of thing. It's like it's still going to exist. It's just going to exist on the black market, and the criminals will take advantage of it. And yeah. it's. So, look, it's it's not in the final thing I'll say, and then we'll wrap it up. And I think everybody here agrees. Anybody who says because we have our own positions on this, that might be contrary to yours, that we want kids to die. I would just say, go screw yourself. You yeah, know, it's like, I, uh, I, amen. you right. know, because I could say the same thing to guys who want to abolish all guns. I could say you just want kids to die because now you're only going to put guns in the hands of criminals who are going to shoot kids. Right. It's like, you know what? It's it's such an unfair, disingenuous, illogical position. Right. right. And. I would love to have a discussion, like you said, Brett, around a table where we could consider all these possible solutions without feeling threatened that you're going to lose everything as a result of the discussion. Because those on the gun advocate side feel like, all right, all you want to do is just get rid of guns altogether. You want to abolish my right to have a firearm. 
So I can't agree to anything. And you know, that it's not a fair position. I don't think for everybody, it's, it's like probably most things in the middle, there's probably more agreement than people think. Yeah. And you'd be, I think you'd be surprised to that you'd have opposite sides at the table for guns. And then all of a sudden it could flip on free speech. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Your position on guns, same thing as mine on free speech. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to protect them all. Yes. Like them or not. They're all equal. Right. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Another roundtable talking about guns. Obviously, we're not going to solve any problems on uh, on firearms. Uh, not this time, anyway. Maybe next time. Uh, if you got any questions, you got any topics you want to cover, you can go to lawyertalkpodcast.com. If you want your own podcast, we got Brett right here at the table. He'll uh, he'll he'll hook you right up at uh, mypodcastguy.com. Yeah. Um, Perfect. You know, podcasts are getting produced at it, 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 more than you can possibly imagine. It's like. Uh, uh, everybody has a podcast for their business. People have their podcast for fun. People have their podcast for whatever reason. And uh, if you want a podcast, you might as well do it right and make it sound right and make it good. And uh, you can do it right here at channel511.com or just uh, look up Brett directly. Uh, so for now, solving problems the best we can. This is Lawyer Talk Roundtable off the record on the air, at least until 2024.